This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, my guest is Charlie Rotblut. Charlie is vice president at the American Association of Individual Investors, and he not only is the editor who oversees the AAII Journal, but also conducts a number of surveys, sentiment surveys of individuals which have been in existence for, gee, they go back to 1987. It's unusual to find a sentiment survey uh, with the same methodology asking questions of individual investors going back that far. We speak about the weekly sentiment survey, which I find a little noisy, but at extremes, it certainly can be useful. And the AAII Asset Allocation Survey, which I find to be tremendously useful. It has pretty much marked the bottom of every major uh, market correction since 1987, um, as well as marked the top at at major highs. And, And it was one of the things that were screaming up and down late 99, early 2000 that, hey, markets have gotten... Uh, way too, way too uh, frothy, and that investors are wildly overweight equities relative to their historic averages. Uh, he's an interesting character. He he does a, a number of fascinating things uh, for AAII. If you're interested in what individual investors are doing, thinking, saying, and how they're allocating their portfolios, uh, I think you'll enjoy this podcast. So, with no further ado. My interview with AAII's Charles Rotblut. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Charles Rotblut. He is the vice president at the American Association of Individual Investors. He's also the editor of the AAII Journal. Uh, He's a CFA and he is the author of Better Good Than Lucky, How Savvy Investors Create a Fortune with the Risk-Reward Ratio. Charles Rotblut, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. So I've been following your work for a long time. I'm a big fan of of, uh, some of the surveys that AAII uh, performs, not so much the day-to-day or weekly things, but the longer-term asset allocation number, I find absolutely a compelling, uh, they say you don't ring a bell, but there are times when that um, survey rings a bell. But before we get into the nitty gritty of exactly uh, the surveys and other things you do, I, I, I told my wife I was interviewing you and, and I described your title and she goes, she asked me, um, well, what does he actually do? And I go, I'll ask him. So when people say to you, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that? Well, I start off by just saying I'm a magazine editor, and that, of course, lets you, well, what magazine and who publishes that? So kind of give a long answer, but uh, main job is I am the editor of the AAI Journal, uh, which really compels, really, uh, really is a matter of providing information about how do you invest better. Uh, so we do a lot of stuff in-house. Uh, I reach out to a lot of smart people on Wall Street. Uh, but in addition to that, we're focused on investor education. And part of the way we do that um, is we provide different model portfolios. Uh, we have a stock superstars report, which invests in different types of strategies. So we're diversifying by strategy, growth, value, and not only by industry, uh, a dividend investing portfolio. Uh, we're also known for our microcap portfolio, which is run by our chairman, Jim Clunan, at Invest in Microcap Stocks. So part editorial, part uh, portfolio management, and also just a lot of uh, speaking to people. And and for people who may not be familiar with AAII, you're a nonprofit. You have 170,000 members. Is that about right? That's right. And essentially, you guys have been around for over 30 years. Is that about right? Yeah, we actually started in the 1970s. Uh, we were actually started by uh, Jim Clunan, mm-hmm. uh, who's, uh, who was a professor at DePaul, and he's still, still at the office. Saw him on Monday. So now we know what AAII is and we know it does. Um, I think you guys are actually one of the largest successful subscriber newsletters that really doesn't specialize in making forecasts. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, it is. We don't 
we do not make any market forecasts. Uh, we actually think people overall are better off if they just didn't make any forecasts because mm -hmm. the tendencies to have this confidence, oh, I'm saying this with ISIS, I'm saying this with China, you know, worry about Janet Yellen. And the reality is it doesn't matter what the market's going to do next week. It really matters when you're 90, do you still have cash in your account that you can live in? And it's very hard for people to lose sight of that because that doesn't necessarily grab headlines, but as an individual investor, your goal is to really get to your last day and still have, a, still have at least a dollar in your bank account. And let's talk about your membership. Who, who's a typical AAII member? Uh, well, we cater to individual investors. Our average member is in his 60s, affluent, college educated. And that's really a demographic. If you talk to Morningstar about their consumer division, look at various investment newsletters, it's, it's all pretty much the same demographic. And I would love to get people in their 20s and 30s involved because we could help them so much at such a young age. Uh, but in general, even when I said invest tools and Zacks previously, it always tended to be older men who, could clean, who actually had built wealth over their life for their careers, mm -hmm. uh, that tends to be the key demographic for really any individual investor type of newsletter or service. Well, if, if you want more millennials, you have to make your acronym sound less like AARP. <laughs> I think they see AA and they don't even get to the II part. They just see that and, uh, and run. You, you mentioned Morningstar. Who do you guys consider your, your competitors? Who's out there if not an identical space, who's who's in a similar space to AAII? You know, there really isn't one. I mean, Morningstar and us do overlap. We have some competitive products, but then we have a lot of people from the organizations. Uh, I think Christine Benz talks to more of our members than I do. Uh, but, you know, Better Investing's out there. They do education, though mm. they're more focused on investment clubs um, and they have their own stock picking system. We're really the only organization that's really focused on comprehensive investment education out there, at least that I'm aware of. And, uh, you know, um, I interviewed Dr. Robert Johnson, who was at the CFA <laughs> Institute and is now president of the American College of Finance. And he's another person who advocates for investor finance. But I'm starting to wonder how successful investor education can be. It seems like people make the same mistakes over and over and over. Can we ever really reach a critical mass of people uh, and, and prevent them from shooting themselves in the foot? You know, I'd like to do that. I think it's always going to be hard because people are always being torn in different directions. Um, there's always going to be services, do this now to make money, do that now to make money. I um, mean, just the pure emotions. Uh, when I speak, one of the very first slides I show actually has a quote from Charlie Ellis who said, sure. As in driving, the secret the secret to success is avoiding the big mistakes. And I tell people, if you want to make a lot of money in the markets, just don't screw up. And if you avoid those behavioral errors that cause you to make a big mistake, that's going to put you light years ahead of the game. But it's easier said than done. So in the last minute we have in this segment, what is one of the biggest errors that investors make? You know, I think it's really panicking and selling at the wrong time. Panicking when there's a bear market, panicking when there's a market correction, because when people do it, they just tend to stay out of the market too long and they basically lock in losses and miss out on the chance to recoup those losses. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Charles Rotblut. He is vice president and editor of the American Association of Individual Investors, as well as the AAII Journal. Uh, I wanted to talk a little more about some of the sentiment measures that AAII does. Probably the most famous one is the weekly sentiment measure. Tell us about that. Sure. So we started this in 87 and we asked our members a very simple question. Over the next six months, I feel the market will be up, bullish, unchanged, neutral, down, bearish. Uh, and we've tracked this weekly and we've seen- Since 87. Since weekly. 87. Mm -hmm. And we've seen over time when, you know, near peaks, bullish sentiment hits very high levels. Uh, during bear markets, hits very low levels. Uh, March 5th, 2009, right at the very bottom of the bear market, uh, bullish sentiment was below 20%. Uh, and what's interesting about it is everyone focuses on the weekly changes, but it's really when it's way off kilter, when it's just way beyond the averages, that's when you have to pay attention, particularly bullish sentiment. Uh, when I've looked at it, eliminated all hindsight. When you see bullish sentiment at unusually low optimistic levels, 
And you would say below 20% yes. is, is how often does it hit that, that reading? Not very often. Not very many times in the history of the survey. So so the really you're, you're looking to more or less, hmm, that's interesting, the noisy week-to-week stuff, but where it really is an investable decision is when it reaches the extreme. Yeah, and the other thing that's interesting, and I'm curious to see what's going to happen now because we've seen it a lot over the last 12 months, uh, but when neutral sentiment's way above its average, mm. that's also been correlated with rising markets. Has that happened previously? It's happened previously, but it's mostly prior to 2000. Uh-huh. And so now over the last year, we've had several readings with it being unusually high. And kind of I want to let things play out to say, do we now see this correlation pop up again? It's not causal, but there's certainly a correlated link between sentiment being very off mm-hmm. and the market's changing direction. That, that's quite interesting. So that's consistent with what I know about um, sentiment. You really want to take a, take a notice when it, reaches, um, when it reaches an extreme. So that raises the question of, of when we have a whole lot of bullishness um, or very little bullishness, uh, are, are these sort of booms and busts, bubbles and, and collapses, is this the inevitable fate of markets? Is, is this just the way human beings behave? Yeah, unfortunately, I think so. We, just, we tend to be greedy by nature. Uh, we tend to be risk adverse and everyone thinks, well, risk aversion means I'm afraid to lose money, but it also means you're afraid of not making money when you see everybody else making money. So Greed is just the inverse of panic. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's just human nature and we have very short histories. We have volumes of market history. Anyone can pick up security analysis and read about what happened leading up to the Great Depression. But, you know, next- Lots of exuberance, right. lots of lots of uh, frothy sentiment, and people just no longer paid attention to the traditional metrics. Yeah. You know, I think if you changed probably 700 words in that whole book, reprinted in 2000, you would have thought it was about the tech bubble. It's funny, funny you say that. There's a book by Richard Wyckoff written in 1923, mm-hmm. and it's called- called How I Trade Stocks and Bonds. And the stuff he talks about are uh, telegraph and telecom, railroads, like a handful of major mm-hmm. industries. And you could swap out the names of the industries. You, you couldn't tell the difference as if it was written yesterday. No one's talking about telegraph, but if you swap telephone and telegraph for internet, you would not be able to tell the difference. It's the exact same narrative. It, it's quite fascinating. Um, so- so the, the next question, the related question to this is, given that these booms and busts are inevitable, given that we're always going to have bubbles, we're always going to have crashes, how should investors deal with their own emotions? How do they deal with fear and greed? You know, I think that's where it ties into weight loss, where they talk about triggers, something that prompts you to eat. And I think people need to be aware what prompts you to trade and setting up barriers. I, I personally advocate for rebalancing. Because I think when you are scared or when you're feeling greedy, it gives you a positive emotional outlet, taking your portfolio back to your targeted allocation. So uh, in other words, the market has gotten shellacked. Mm-hmm. It's down 25% where it was. And your portfolio is supposed to be, I'm making up round numbers, 30% US equities, 20% uh, developed XUS, and 10% emerging market. And all of those have moved off of those preset measures. By rebalancing, you mean... You're going to sell a little bit of everything else that's run up and move these allocations to their previous level. So if you're supposed to be 30% US and now it's 27, you're going to move it back to 30. Yeah. And the beauty of it is two things. A, you're buying low, selling high, a proven strategy, but you're also giving yourself back that sense of control where, Mm -hmm. okay, this is going on and here's something I can actually do and I know why I'm doing it. And that alone from an emotional standpoint I think can help people a lot. It's certainly not the only way, uh, but I like it from a behavioral standpoint. Quite, quite interesting. Um, anytime people can do something that doesn't shoot themselves in the foot, especially when they're dealing with their own emotions, uh, is a really, really good thing. Let, let's talk a little bit about valuations. Are, are U.S. markets expensive, cheap, or fairly valued? You know, I think they're fairly valued when you look at it. Obviously, the big question is, do we get earnings and revenues growth? And that that's a big question. Uh, if we don't get earnings, if we don't get revenue started up, then obviously we can make an argument that stocks are overvalued. Uh, but I think right now they're probably fairly valued. Um, and you know, some people can point to Cape saying, "Well, that's out of whack." But 
But that's been out of whack for a long time. Yeah, okay. we actually- I mean, decades out of whack. Yeah, we actually, in our dividend investing portfolio, we actually adjusted the numbers and thought, okay, what if we start out when rates first started being raised uh, back, I guess, 20 years ago? I'm sorry, when rates started peak, they started coming back down from 1982. Mm-hmm. And we looked at the keep from there. And based on that measure, it's about average. So mm-hmm. if you figure, okay, we're in this low interest rate environment, it makes sense. If you really are convinced the Fed's going to raise rates, and every four raise aggressively, right? And every forecast about that's been wrong for six years running now. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's hard to argue that stocks are expensive uh, on that measure. What What do you think is a good measure of valuation for the average individual investor? Yeah, I think on an average level, looking at stocks, um, I like price the book. I think price to earnings or price to sales. Um, for the market overall, uh, the PE is just good because it's so easy to find and it's just mm-hmm. out there. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Charles Rotblood. He is a vice president at the AAII uh, out of Chicago, uh, a nonprofit association of individual investors. Uh, I mentioned earlier the AAII asset allocation survey, which I've been a big fan of mostly because it only makes really significant readings on rare occasions. So first, let's talk about the survey itself. Tell us about the survey. What do you ask people and how often are you asking it? We do the survey monthly and we ask members how much you're allocating the stocks, stock funds, bonds, bond funds, and cash. Uh, We've done it since 87. Uh, we've occasionally had people ask, well, why don't you include gold? Why don't you add real estate? Commodities. And, yeah. And our reason is, well, we have this history that's been pretty stable that we can now compare it against. So to update it, we'd lose all that long-term record. Start over, right. Yeah. What's the average long-term history? What is the typical equity exposure stocks and stock funds that you get from um, your AAII members? It's been 60%. So about 60%. And I've noticed that there are times where it's significantly underweight as well as significantly overweight, but it only reaches these extremes on rare occasions. In fact, you could go back to 1990. It was really at a a very, very low level. 99, 2000, as overbought as I've ever seen it. In, In late 02, it was back to those 1990 levels, early 90 levels. And then again in 09 was the lowest I've ever seen it. Um, so that's what, five, four or five signals over, over 30 years? Is this essentially the intention of the allocation survey? Very rarely does it reach those extremes. Yeah, well, we survey our members and we started just because no one else was tracking it. How are you mm-hmm. allocating it? So we look at more as information. But it certainly coincides where we see these market peaks and these market bottoms uh, where people adjust their portfolios. And and part of it's just portfolios dropping. Uh, But part of it, even though we encourage our members to be long-term, they get to the point where fear takes over Mm -hmm. uh, or greed takes over and their portfolio goes to extreme levels. So how did the survey come about? Was it simply, hey, no one else is doing this? Let's just start asking our, our members how they're allocated? Exactly. It was really a case where we just didn't feel like anybody was giving voice to individual investors. And that's what really started the sentiment survey and the asset allocation survey. Well, let's give our members a, a voice. Let's actually figure out what they're doing and let them explain to everybody else, this is what I'm actually doing versus having people you know, guess as to how the individual investor is reacting. So you know, we've only seen four really extreme um, overbought or oversold signals going back to, you can even say 1988 was a, was a fairly over, uh, oversold signal. So let's call it five. Where, where is the allocation model today? You know, it's pretty close to average. Uh, stocks have been running a little bit above average, but they're still in the low 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing I hear consistently from our members is I can't get any interest. I can't get any yield. Uh, and a lot of our members, because the retirees are their near retirement, they're thinking about, I need cash. I need want to earn something on my cash. So I do think there's a lot of investors who are either holding cash or investing in stocks because they just don't like bonds and they're frustrated with low interest rates and they're fearful that at some point rates will rise, even though that fear has been around for a while now. Well, I, I have to think that eventually rates are going to rise, but you don't know when that eventually is going to be. And you need the income now. Uh, that that's why they've invented bond ladders. So you can basically, as rates go up, you sell the most recent year and 
and reinvest it. That that should be a fairly standard approach for most bond investors, shouldn't it be? Yeah, it should be. And even if somebody does want to own bond funds, they can buy, there's bullet shares, which basically are bond ladder funds that mm-hmm. mature on a certain date. So there's certainly options or you could even do it with CDs. Uh, but I think a lot of people just look at that low interest rates and they have a hard time thinking, oh good, I'm going to get 1% of my interest or 1.5% of my interest. And it's hard conceptually to figure that out, but they're mm-hmm. not thinking, yeah, you're not getting paid any interest, but you're also not going to lose any money. So so let's talk about the dividend investing mm-hmm. as long as we're talking about sure. yield. You guys have, uh, in the last minute we have, you have the dividend investing newsletter. I keep hearing from individuals that they're looking at dividend stocks as a bond substitute. Are you are you hearing anything like that? And what is the, the dividend investor letter like? Yeah, we do definitely hear about that. We hold 24 dividend paying stocks. We focus on growth and low valuations. So I do think they can supplement income, but I think investors need to view bonds as this is what I'm going to use for safety mm-hmm. to protect my short-term assets and maybe dip into when I need to buy stocks on a dip versus as solely the source of income. And I think dividends, particularly for a retired investor, can help. But even for someone away from retirement, you know, you're just basically juicing the game because you get the increase in, in your stock price. And then you're in cash on the side that you can then reinvest in stocks and Mm -hmm. obviously get more dividends from doing that reinvestment. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Charles Rotblut. He is vice president at the American Association of Individual Investors. He is also the author of Better Good Than Lucky, How Savvy Investors Can Create a Fortune with the Risk-Reward Ratio as well as editor of the AAII Journal. So we've been talking a lot about uh, sentiment and what it means uh, for investing. Let's get into a little more of the details, this segment. How important is sentiment analysis to the average stock market investor? Yeah, I I think it provides some colors to what's going on. Um, I definitely think it can be an alert to go look closer, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly if you see sentiment being way off. That should be a sign of what else is going on. I don't think sentiment necessarily high or low drives stock prices in the other direction, but it's usually a sign there's some other things going on. Maybe valuations are too high. Maybe valuations too low. Uh, maybe there's too much fear being priced into the market. Uh, so I think it's a good alert to take a step back and start looking at the broader forest instead of focusing on one tree and asking yourself, have things swung too far and what's causing them to swing too far? Interesting. Um and relevant to this, uh, when do you think sentiment analysis works best? Is it something that's just there in the background for color, or, or is there time where it seems to be more astute than others? You know, I think it's very astute whenever you see the market getting very expensive or very cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a time where you can start getting a sense that maybe people are going overboard. Uh, we even saw this with housing when you got to 2007, where people were buying no interest loans, you know, overpaying on houses where everyone's saying, oh, housing can't lose. Um, And you start seeing things on magazine covers. That's usually a sign that maybe there's too much greed being put into the system. And anytime you hear fill in the blank, can't lose, you know, there's trouble coming. Absolutely. So that raises another question. How significant is investor behavior to their own ability to generate decent returns? Oh, I think it's absolutely critical. There was a study, I can't recall where it was done, but they looked at professional traders and they actually gave them cortisol to raise their stress hormones. And mm-hmm. what the researchers figured out was that as the stress hormones were raised, these traders who were professionals became more and more risk adverse. Uh, so I think there's definitely a biological component. Um, as Kahneman and Tversky found out, Daniel Kahneman and Mr. Tversky. Uh, Nobel we, laureate winners in economics for their psychology work. Exactly. They figured out that we're risk adverse and we'll pretty much do everything we can to avoid incurring losses are to limit the pain of losses. We're more focused as humans on avoiding the pain of losses than we are gaining those gains. We, we feel we feel uh, the pleasure of gains half as intensely as we do the pain of losses. As a rough rule of thumb. Yes. I mean, uh, really, I, I find this stuff endlessly um, fascinating. So from a related perspective and, and from your seat, dealing with a lot of different individual investors, What do you think that the average American investor is overly concerned with? I know you had mentioned ISIS and the election, but those are kind of passing 
news events. What, from a a 30,000-foot view, are they consistently um, over-concerned with? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's what's front of of mind. What's going on right now? What are they seeing at um, versus thinking long-term? I think they just succumb too often to recency bias versus thinking, I have this portfolio and it needs to last for the end of my life and not even realizing that if you're retired at age 65, nowadays you could be looking at 30 or 40 years more of life and not thinking in terms of those long periods. And it's hard to do. I think everyone's too focused on the very short term on the immediate headlines and not thinking over the long term and what has history suggested works over the long term. I I know I'm going to mangle this statistic because I'm doing it from memory, but I recall reading something along the lines of if as of today you make it to age 75, you have a two and three chance of making it to 90 or, or something along those lines. It's because when you look at the longevity, the average lifespan, it's relative to, uh, you know, how many people died in childbirth. And there's a whole series of things that affect the average lifespan. But if obviously you make it to 75, you've bypassed all those things the odds of making it to 90 just go up dramatically versus uh, the average person, which significantly impacts how much money you're going to need across the course of your retirement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's things that happen throughout life. People die early because of diseases, there's accidents, uh, what have you. And you're right, people get to a certain age and then life expectancies actually start increasing the average life expectancies because once you get to age 75, you have all those people that have lived to 100 or older pushing the number upwards. So have you guys come down on the active versus passive debate? I can't say I've seen anything recently uh, along those lines. How, how do you guys feel about indexing and how important is active stock selection to, to long-term returns? Yeah, we're both. Um, and I tell people, look, if you have no interest, you just don't want to spend time on it, do passive. And Really, passive investing should be your benchmark. Can you do better? Can you get more return mm-hmm. and more income? Uh, but I think someone who's willing to take some control, uh, particularly if they're willing to step outside the S&P 500 and really look at the other several thousand stocks that never get mentioned, right. uh, they certainly can get much higher returns than the S&P 500 over the long term. Are, are you seeing individuals using a lot of ETFs? I know that they're cranking out a million of them now. It's got to be over a thousand ETFs. How um, useful have these become as a tool for individual investors? Yeah, I think it's split. I see some people are are using them a lot. I think particular. It's I can't really say what type. I do think a lot of people are using them, but I still see people who are fearful about using them. They hear about the high frequency traders um, and these you know things being kind of wild and some bad news when you have some of these specialized ones that really just trade out of whack. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's mixed and I haven't necessarily seen a trend where everyone's shifting the ETFs or they're not. Um, you know, I think when people look at it, it really comes down to what's easy and also how are you investing? If your dollar cost averaging on mutual fund works better just because you can buy those fractional shares, but right. you know, a commission explain free- fractional shares. Cause I bet some listeners are not familiar. You buy an ETF, you're buying one share of the ETF, but with a mutual fund- The mutual fund, you can buy you know, 0.108 shares. You, you can, can buy $1,000 worth, and exactly. if that turns out not to be an even number, you get the fractional share and they can track that. Exactly. So your, your entire money goes into worth an ETF. Uh, you know, If you have an ETF and an IRA, maybe you have $20.50 in change just sitting there in cash because it's not enough to buy a share of anything. A single share. And over time, that on a dollar cost averaging basis- that can add up to a lot of money. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your book because we really didn't get to that last segment. Uh, Better Good Than Lucky. Tell us, what is the risk-reward ratio? Well, I came out with a 10-point plan for analyzing a stock, looking at valuation, looking at growth rates, looking at the balance sheet. And the idea was, how can you analytically look at a stock to determine, is it risky or is it actually a good value? Um, And the whole idea is really have something quantitative where you could actually measure stock against. Uh, what I'm doing right now is I'm actually refining the strategy, trying to actually simplify it a little bit more, because uh, I really realized at the end of the day, if you just get value momentum, those two factors, which are completely uncorrelated, low value and an upward moving price, that alone's the cornerstone you need. And then just overlay some of the factors to get rid of the junkier stocks, the stocks with bad balance sheets, the stocks are less profitable and add to it. So I'm actually re- revising the strategy right now, but the idea is you have a quantitative measure 
that you can use to analyze a stock and determine whether or not it's a good value or not. So ultimately, if you are looking to identify, are these, when you say good value, is it lower cost stocks or is it just good value relative to other characteristics? What what matters most? You know, I, I look for low valuation, low price of the book. I'm actually testing right now, looking at absolutes, uh, which I used in my book originally, looking for a price of earnings uh, below 12 or price of the book below two. Uh, but I'm also now trying to test it. PE below 12. Price, price the, the book, book below two. Correct. And how does that compare to the historical averages for both of those uh, metrics? They tend to actually be in a lower 30 mm -hmm. to 40% over time. I mean, obviously it varies. Bottom third is exactly. the fair statement. Yes, absolutely. And at times you're a little bit higher and at times are a little bit lower. But in general, that seems to be meshed pretty well over the long term. And, and so how does one use this metric? Is it just a matter of sorting? And here's a list of these are the cheapest stocks uh, straight down. Is that is that the application? Yeah, the idea is you can use it for a screen. Or if you know you're watching news and someone says Acme Incorporated is a new company, it's great. You can then take this measure. Okay, I'm hearing about the stock. How does it actually stack up? And I think for investors, even if they're not using that system, just having a set of quantitative measures where you can take any stock and measure it against will give you a quick five minute you know analysis. Is this something worth pursuing, or is this something I should walk away from? And if people want to learn more about AAII, where would they go to find out more information? Uh, AAII.com, right to our website. And they, they, could, they could become a member. They could subscribe to the journal there. And your writings are on the AAII blog there. Is that correct? Yes, on the blog. I, do a, I actually do a weekly email, the AAII Investor Update. That's on the website. Uh, if people want to join, it's $29 a year. So it's very cheap to actually subscribe and, and be a member. That sounds great. We've been speaking with Charles Rotblood. He is the vice president of the American Association of Individual Investors. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things investing. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to the podcast. I don't know why I do this every time. Uh, Charlie, thank you so much for doing this. This is sure. really interesting. I, I have been either reading your surveys, following the asset allocation model, or or seeing your name in print for, uh, I don't know, how long have you been with them? It's been years uh, and years and yeah, years. Yeah, I've been there about six and a half years now. Okay, but I, I and I've been following AAII stuff, especially that asset allocation model, which I've posted on the blog a few times, for I don't know how long, for, for decades, I've always, anything that generates a signal very infrequently <laughs> becomes really fascinating. And people forget about it. Oh, yeah, this thing hasn't thrown off a signal in pff, in 15 years. Just, just ignore it, they said in 98, 99. And then it went from moderately overweight to aggressively overweight to, wow, we've never seen this at 77%. When our average is 60%, that's pretty significant. Mm -hmm. uh, so people kind of forget that these things exist because they're most of the time they're in the middle of the range. But once they get to these extremes, it's really, it's really quite fascinating. Yeah, and absolutely. I think you're right. People forget what history is, and it's very easy to do it. But uh, as I said earlier, it really comes down to if it's reaching those levels, it's a good little trigger stop, look what's going on, because it usually, when it hits those extremes, uh, usually it's pretty close to a market bottom or usually pretty close to a market peak. Uh, and there's usually some other things going on, but you're in the day-to-day -day news, the headlines, it's very easy to lose sight that you have these longer-term indicators. And you can even point to the Schiller's Cape and other things where they're, they are long-term, but once they hit those levels, it's really worth paying attention and taking a step back and doing that broader analysis. So how did you find your way to AAII? You've been there for six and a half years. Mm -hmm. How'd you, let's, let's go way back. Where did you, tell us about your background. Where did you start in, in finance? Yeah, I actually started in finance for a small business valuation firm. And uh, what happened was I actually, my degrees in journalism, mm -hmm. uh, I worked in advertising for six years. Um, and then I was doing some temp work and I got a call to work for a firm and I joined, it was a small business valuation firm. So we were valuing closely held businesses and I knew Microsoft Excel. And the owner, one of the owners of the company said to me, 
I think it's easier to teach accounting than Microsoft Excel. Uh, and this is the mid-90s where a lot right. of people weren't computer literate. Uh, it just happened to be a good fit, and that was, I guess, 22 years ago. Do you, I, I'm assuming you're still a regular user of Excel? Absolutely. Do, do you like the latest version? That I, I was so annoyed. <laughs> they All the buttons that I've grown to love, they've moved, hidden, made more difficult to find. Oh, I hate the new menu. I <laughs> wish they would go back to the old one. I can't find That's half exactly the how I feel. I, you know, I kept an old one for as long as I could, uh -huh. but eventually the upgrades around it, the operating right. system upgrades, eventually it broke the old Excel, which was just so much better than, than the new one. Yeah, I don't mind Windows 10, but I just hate the way Office in general is designed. I wish they'd just give me the option to have the old menus back. So I'm waiting to go on Stephanie Rule's show a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. and I'm just sitting there reading through my mail, and I look up, and there's Bill Gates standing all by himself in oh the back gosh. of the room. So I walk over, introduce myself. Hey, you should come on our podcast, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I had to tweet something. Uh -huh. And I couldn't just tweet, met Bill Gates in the green room at, at, at Bloomberg Go. So I, <laughs> I swear this is on Twitter. I added, complained to him about the buttons on, <laughs> on the new Excel, asked to go back to the old style. And people like yelled at me like I actually did that. You know he's not at Microsoft anymore. Oh yeah, it was a joke. Exactly. It was just a, uh, so I'm glad to hear when when someone else is an Excel uh, power user and, and hates those buttons. I used to know my way around the program, and now I feel like I'm wandering in a in a. Gee, I've never been in this town before, and it's been like three years. I still haven't adapted to everything. Yeah, I've learned where certain things are, but I still find myself clicking on things. Where's this? Where's that? Right, because it, it used to be so intuitive. It used to be right, right there. It's prettier now. It's just much less useful. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, so so you start out from journalism. How did you eventually get to, to AAII? Well, so I started working for a small business valuation firm, and I think I was there for about six months. And my boss, who's also my mentor, looked at me and said, I think you should take the CFA exam. I don't think you should pass it, but I think you should try and so I took it, uh, mm -hmm. ended up passing all three on a first try. So I Right, you I showed get, him. Yeah, exactly. I guess he knew how to motivate me. Uh, and then from there, <laughs> um, I went to work for, well, what's now Invest Tools Think or Swim. Back then, oh, it, was, sure. it was Telescan back then. Mm -hmm. uh, worked for them. Now part of TD. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I was with them for about five and a half years. Uh, then I actually took a job in Denver working for Curian Capital, which was under the Jackson National Life Prudential UK. I was going to say that's a big shop at one point in time. Yeah, it was. And I was working for them. They were still pretty much in startup stage. Mm -hmm. uh, worked there for almost a year. Uh, true sequence of events. We had our holiday party in Vesco Field. They let the president go. And then they had a massive layoff at the firm, all in about a span of about six weeks. Wow. Yeah. So what, what led you eventually to, to this gig? Uh, well, I was in Chicago working for Zach's afterwards. Mm -hmm. And- our vice president at AAII is an old fraternity brother of mine from college. And one night he called up and said, we have this position. Our editor is retiring. You should come in and talk to us. And I looked at my wife and I said, I, I know what the organization is. I don't know much about this position, but I know Adam, so I'll go in and talk. And I, pretty soon I into the conversation, I realized this could be a really good fit. Perfect, perfect fit. Yes. So it, it's the uh, Wall Street's uh, old boy network at y work, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it helps. So so you mentioned one of your early mentors earlier, but you didn't get any more specific. Who were your mentors? Uh, well, I think for investing, probably my biggest mentor was, was Jeff Schumacher, my first boss. He passed away several years ago, uh, but- he was a CPA that focused on business valuation. He just really understood the concept of valuation. And I know a lot of people get their start on Wall Street working with these big investment banks, but there's something about, I think, working on that private side where you're really being hands-on and really look at these small businesses, understanding how they're actually being run, having to really look at the cash flow statement. And I think having a valuation that if it goes to court, you're able to defend it. I think it, it definitely, I think from my standpoint, it gave me a better background. Huh, quite quite intriguing. Um, so he was a mentor. What other investors influenced the way you think about investing? Yeah, I think Warren Buffett actually did. Uh, His name comes up all the time. Yeah, and really because of Warren Buffett, I sat down and read security analysis, the whole whatever. Benjamin eight, Graham. Yeah, the whole 800 pages or whatever it is. Um, I read uh, Philip Fisher's uh, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. That That's the second time that book has come up in the past uh, couple of weeks. It's it's 
one of those things that is just a classic. Yeah, it is. It really is. And so I read a lot of books because of that. Um, you know, and I, what other investors, uh, you know, other investors that influence me. I mean, he's the best. I, a lot of people, I just look at things they do. Uh, Carl Richards, I try to look at his stuff all the time. Uh, he does a sketch column for the New York times Mm -hmm. and I just love his ability to simplify things. Um, I do find myself constantly look at Jim O'Shaughnessy's what works on wall street, uh, where his book basically looks at various indicators for stocks, various measures, uh, how they've worked. Uh, but I just try to read what other people say. This is a really famous book. Where are the customers' yachts? I know sure. that's been mentioned. It's very funny. Yeah. You know, people don't realize it's really a very amusing book. Absolutely. And the, the education sort of sneaks in when you're not paying attention. Yeah. And actually, recently for an article, I picked up Peter Lynch's uh, One Up on Wall Street. And I was thumbing through that. And I was amazed how much in that book never gets pointed out to. And he has a lot about selling stocks. And mm-hmm. all people think is, oh, Peter Lynch, buy what you know. Right. But there's far more to his strategies than that he's he's really a fascinating guy i think he's still chairman emeritus or something like that at fidelity up in boston yeah i don't know what his status is right now in terms of career what he's doing it could be possibly so he stepped down um from was it magellan the magellan yes magellan like just fantastic timing got there ranked racked up fantastic numbers for a decade oh not even a little less Stepped down at the top and kind of just became a marketing person for them. But man, what an amazing track record he he accrued in, in a very short period of time. It's really impressive. And I would have been curious to see what he would have done afterwards. And I think the one advantage Warren Buffett has over Peter Lynch is not having to worry about those outflows. And, you know, put Peter Lynch in a Warren Buffett type situation where he doesn't have to deal with inflows and outflows. It would be interesting. It would have been really interesting to see what he would have done. So you mentioned a handful of books. You mentioned Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits. What other books do you find especially important, influential, or just enjoyable? Well, one book I'll point out, it's coming out later this year, a little self-serving. Our chairman and founder, Jim Clunan, is writing a book called Investing at Level 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to be somewhat controversial because he's he's basically taking on the whole notion of portfolio management. Um, and his view of risk is not the day-to-day volatility, but having enough money to last you through the rest of your life. So he's really advocating long-term long-term growth for stocks. And he's actually going to make the mathematical argument over the long term. Not only should you be mostly in stocks, but you should actually use some leverage. Uh, if you're 25% leverage, he did the calculations. You'll never have a margin call over a long period of time, but you'll juice your returns. Uh, but what he, happens? So the, the worst crash we saw, uh, uh-huh. uh, 1929 is going to be a um, a near 80% collapse. Wouldn't wouldn't that have generated a margin call? He said even if you just limit to 25%, you still wouldn't have hit it yet. If you went, if you went over, you would have, but that limit, you still right. have enough in there. I mean, you had 57% recently. That shouldn't generate a right. margin call. If you so, and I'm going to assume he's in the Nick Murray camp. Of no bonds, just just doing equities. Yeah, his argument is just have about four years of bonds. So if you're retired, you have money to dr- actually withdraw, mm-hmm. um, and that's another I've been hearing a lot. The idea is four you, years, meaning what, ten percent, something like it dep- that. Well, it depends on the size of your portfolio. It's really four years of living expenses. Oh, and, okay, got and, it. So you know, where are you getting in Social Security? What are you getting in pensions? And then maybe have your annuities, and what do you need outside of that to live on? That's going to be a controversial book. That'll, yeah, that'll yeah. be that'll be interesting to see when that comes out. What other books really stick out in your mind? Uh, you know, I pointed out uh, what works on Wall Street. Uh, that's one. I book. have I have that in the office and at home. It's a tome, but it's terrific. It absolutely is terrific. Uh, one book that came out earlier this year uh, that I don't think really got a lot of attention. It's called The Art of Execution by Lee Freeman Shore. He's the a, art of execution. Exactly, and it's all about selling. He uh, he's a man. Oh, really? He's a money manager in London. Uh, he basically separate his accounts up around, I can't remember how many traders, many traders. Uh-huh. And then he looked to see, okay, what were the traders who are doing well? What were, what habits were they? did they have? And the ones who are doing poorly, what were they doing? And he actually separated them to five different tribes, rabbits, hunters. And he basically found commonalities between the guys that like, he, I think rabbits, he said, tended to dig a hole when they were down right? Uh, versus he had some other investors where assassins, if a stock fell by 30%, they would just cut the position and get out. Right. Uh, he had one group, he said connoisseurs, which were the most successful long-term investors, but they took profits over time. 
So they weren't always trying to sell it once or just wait for that one big thing, but gradually get out of the stock. And it was, it's interesting because no one really talks so much about selling. And he did a, a very good analysis of it. I, I was going to say there was one other book I'm familiar with, and I want to say it came out in the 80s or maybe even earlier, maybe even the 70s by Justin Mammoth called When to Sell. But for that book, the really you're hard pressed to find a book that says, okay, if you're going to buy individual stocks, here's what your selling discipline should be. It, it's an amazingly overlooked part of, of the investing experience. So the name of this book again is- It's called The Art of Execution. The Art of Execution. And is the whole thing on uh, when to jettison stocks or is it, it more a, a broader portfolio it's it's his analysis of those traders of what each tribe of traders actually did and what their commonalities were. So and so the book is based on a study he did on, on exactly uh, how many traders did he look at? I, I'm trying to remember. Got to be number. hundreds, right? Yeah, you know, I cannot remember the numbers. I'm drawing a blank on it. But it was a pretty. I'm going to guess it's a pretty significant. Yeah, number. it's a pretty substantial size on there. Um. All right. So let's keep going. So you've been in this industry for a while. What has changed for the better and for the worse? You know, I think for the better in terms of people's ability to do research, uh, I know when I started, if I needed to do research, uh, I remember going to Rice University in Houston where I worked uh, in Houston and going to a, the library and go on LexisNexis, go yeah. through periodicals, occasionally through Microfish. And now you have sites like SSRN where you can just, anyone can Click. dig up research. Yep. Uh, Kenneth French's website on data, uh, people want long-term data on valuation ratios. Just tremendous amount, completely free. Schiller also has a huge source exactly. of, uh, of, it's amazing how much information academics, not only are they publishing, but they are doing a huge, um, it's a huge benefit to anyone who's willing to roll up their sleeves and wade into it because all the numbers are there. You don't have to rely on anecdotes or myths or best guesses. The data is actually there. Yeah, and I think even just the speed helps. You remember probably in the 90s, if you downloaded a 10K from the SEC's website, you'd click on a link and then you'd go make dinner and come back and it might be finishing up just then. You've got mail. That, <laughs> exactly. That, that's how uh, that the dial-up modems, you weren't moving files if it wasn't text. Exactly. Really, who could be bothered waiting for that? I, 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 totally, uh, I totally get that. Um, so technology clearly has changed how we, how we do business. The amount of information available is tremendous, but if everybody has access to the same information, what advantage does it beget to any individual investor? Yeah, I think it comes down to being disciplined. Um, I think individual investors, as I said earlier, really need to think about looking at the whole span of stocks, not just you know the stocks that, exactly, not just what you hear about in the media, because those large institutional investors, as you know, they have so much money to invest. Below a certain market capitalization, they, they just can't allocate. Mm -hmm. it, they'd have to buy the entire company. Um, and so I think investors need to do that. I always encourage investors to just go slow. You know, put your trade order in, step up, take a deep breath, and just think about what you're doing. Uh, these high-frequency traders, if they're concerned about milliseconds, right. I don't care what app you're using, how speed you're You're not going to beat yeah, them. Exactly. You're gonna so be you have to play a different game. Exactly. Yeah, play in a different, in a different sandbox. Huh. I, I can't say I, I agree more. So given given what's changed, what do you see as the next shifts that are going to take place in finance? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I definitely think the robo-advisors are probably mm -hmm. going to continue. Uh, we'll see what happens with the fiduciary rule. Uh, you know, I think we're going to see probably new products from Wall Street. Uh, we're seeing with ETS right now where they're really reaching with new ideas. So mm -hmm. um, I think at some point someone's probably going to come up with some new idea that hasn't been created yet. Uh, not sure what yet. Uh, you always have those big changes that are always unexpected. Uh, but I definitely think there's just too much money, too much creativity, and too much type A personalities out there for something not brand new to be created. I'm working on a, a robo-advisor that all it does is create new types of ETFs. So every day it cranks out <laughs> 20 new ETFs. The goal is we want to have a million ETFs by the end of the decade. <laughs> it feels like that sometimes if you look yes. at the number of new names that that keep coming out. Um, and now we're down to my last two and my favorite questions. So someone who's a recent college graduate or a millennial comes to you and asks for advice on a career in finance, 
what would you tell them? Yeah, I think the one thing more than anything else is just figure out how can you explain things as in simple and as in simple English as possible. Uh, I know you've been at conferences. I've been at conferences where we're getting a conversation. And I just want to say to them, I know what you're saying, but let's speak English. And I think the ability to just communicate these very complex concepts in very simple, concise language, that alone is invaluable. I couldn't possibly agree more. When people ask me what I do for a living, that was a question mm -hmm. I asked you, but I always say my job is to take these complex, hard-to-understand situations and make them simple and easy to understand. My wife teaches art. My mother is a, a retired school, uh, retired uh, real estate agent. If I can make, so when they say to me, explain to me what HFT is, if I can make somebody both very smart but just not in in a field that uses uh, a lot of jargon and a lot of math and a lot of uh specific financial terms if i can make them understand something in a way that oh that makes sense and it's not complicated i know i've i've achieved something and you seem to be saying the same thing taking complex situations and making them easy to understand that's uh, that's something that is important. How does that apply to a millennial or someone just starting out in a career of finance? Well, I think that's one of the things that I think gives them an edge, being able to communicate those things. No matter you know whether they want to be very quantitatively based, whether they want to do more journalism or editorial, uh, just having that skill set, a lot of people don't have it. There's a lot of very smart people that can't necessarily break things down to that layman's terms. And and that's one skill if you can do it and you ever have a situation where there's a bad bear market and it's tough to find a job in finance, you then have that skill set where you can carry it to somewhere else. But if you want to work in finance, I think it just opens doors for you. But I, I would say I do think getting the CFA helps immensely. It's mm -hmm. definitely helped my career. Um, good set of knowledge base. Uh, and I think in the industry, it's very much smiled upon. I know that sounds self-serving, uh, no, I it's thought, absolutely true. It's, yeah. it's we've we've heard that if it's you versus another candidate and you're a CFA and they're not, you're you as the CFA very well may have have a big advantage there. I found it to be completely invaluable in my career. And the final question I have: What is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew 20 years ago? Yeah, I think probably behavioral finance, and mm -hmm. I wish I recognized that I knew about it 20 years ago. I think not only would have helped me and made me more disciplined. 20 years ago, but I think it might have changed the way I talk about things and mm -hmm. how I view things. And I, it's probably in the last five or six years, I really started studying and really started grasping it. And it just really, like when I started really paying attention to the value, that really meshed, behavioral finance really meshed. So I really wish 20 years ago, I knew more about it. And certainly there's a lot more now about it, a lot more that's come out of the last 20 years than existed back then. But I think it explains a lot of things, not only what other people do, but also why we do certain things and it allows people including myself to set up barriers and set up systems so i don't make the same mistakes really interesting stuff charlie rotblood thank you so much for coming to bloomberg we've been speaking to charles rotblood of the american association of individual investors if you enjoy these conversations be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on apple itunes and you could see the other 90 or so uh, of our podcasts I would be remiss if I did not thank Mark, our recording engineer, Taylor Riggs, our booker, Michael Batnick, our head of research who helps prepare all of these questions, and Charles Vollmer, our producer. Uh, thank you for listening. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.